evidence and answers. The advances in bioengineering, biotechnology, and biomedicine have allowed us to cure many diseases, but also enhance and even alter human nature. The transhumanist school believes that technology will not only enhance the human condition, but even grant us immortality. The current movement of transhumanism asserts that humanity will achieve a new form of humanity through its adaption of artificial intelligence and genetic engineering. However, in striving to merge technology and our physiology, could we lose our souls in the process? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucaran. Pat is an international teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Listen today as Pat and Dr. Fazal Rana discuss the transhuman debate and the future of the human race. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and biblical answers to the issues of today. Is the cyborg the future of humanity? Will the combination of artificial intelligence and genetic engineering combine to create a new species of humanity? Are we now entering into a new age of post-humanity? This is the transhuman debate. The advances in bioengineering, biotechnology, and biomedicine have allowed us to cure many diseases, but also enhance and even alter human nature. The transhumanist school believes that technology will not only enhance the human condition, cure disease, conquer death, but even grant us immortality. The current movement of transhumanism asserts that humanity will eventually achieve a new form as a species through its adaption of modern computer technology and genetic engineering. However, in striving to merge technology and our physiology, could we lose our souls in the process? Well, to help us with these questions is Dr. Fuzz Rana. Dr. Rana writes and speaks extensively about evidence for creation emerging from biochemistry, genetics, human origins, and synthetic biology. Dr. Rana is Vice President of Research and Apologetics at Reasons to Believe, an outstanding organization based in California there. He's the author of several groundbreaking books, including Who is Adam? Creating Life in the Lab and the Cell's Design. He holds a PhD in chemistry with an emphasis in biochemistry from Ohio University. And he's written a new book that we're highlighting here addressing the issue of transhumanism titled Humans 2.0. So, Fuzz, welcome once again to Evidence and Answers. Pat, thanks so much for having me. It's uh, an honor and, and a delight to be with you. Yes. Now, Fuzz, we're talking about transhumanism here. And what exactly do we mean when we speak of transhumanism? Yeah, well, transhumanism is this um, idea that has part science and technology, it's part philosophy, and it's part religion and, and theology. And it's the, the idea that we should use uh, science and technology to enhance human beings beyond our, our current biological limits with the idea of potentially taking control of our own quote-unquote evolution, evolving humanity into these post-human species that would be better adapted for the technological world that we live in. And through the process of transcending our biology, making us stronger and smarter and more psychologically well-adjusted is the hope that we could somehow attain a utopian type of future and use this technology to grant human beings practical immortality. And so, in effect, transhumanism 
is a, a movement that looks to science and technology as a way to provide salvation for human beings uh, as individuals and as a human species. Yeah, you know, this kind of sounds like we have placed our faith in technology, you know, to bring us this utopia, eternal life, paradise here upon the earth. Yeah, I mean, in, in fact, some scholars will refer to it as techno-faith. That is, uh, you know, the object of our faith is not uh, the person of Christ as it is for those of us who are Christians, but it's essentially what we can achieve through science and technology. And in many respects, you could think of transhumanism as a, an alternative gospel, as, and maybe even a counterfeit gospel to the Christian gospel. And in my view, it's going to be perhaps the chief competitor to the gospel in the decades to come, in part because our world is becoming more and more secular, and also people have so much respect for science and technology and already turn to science and technology routinely to solve the problems that we're confronted with as individuals, as a human species. People trust in what medicine can accomplish for our health and our well-being. And so it's just a, a natural extension to put your ultimate trust in science and technology for your salvation. Now, you bring up some concerns here, but what are some other big concerns here? I mean, for many people, I mean, this sounds good. We're going to cure disease. We're going to get rid of things like muscular dystrophy and other diseases. Crippled, the blind can see, the lame can walk. People will be healed. Life will be granted. I mean, this this all sounds good. Yeah, well, I mean, this is the, the complexity of engaging, you know, transhumanism and and, and the idea of human enhancement technologies is that the technologies that are fueling the transhumanist movement that are being contemplated as for their use as uh, human enhancement technologies also have very important biomedical applications. And so the technology in and of itself is not inherently wrong or inherently bad. It's just what is the best way for us to use the technology. So there's all kinds of ethical questions that, that arise as a result of you know, this development in technology, even when it's applied in a biomedical context. But again, the ethical concerns become amplified when we think about applying them for human enhancements or utilizing them in fulfillment of the, the transhumanist vision. With the advance of technology also comes a price. For example, the invention of the car. Well, now we can travel many miles, but there's air pollution, the cell phone. Now we can be contacted anywhere and pay such a low price for communication but however now it's impossible to be left alone you know you can always be contacted wherever you are so with the advancement of technology there is a price often which we do not foresee yeah and and this is i think a very important point that you're bringing up pat that you know needs to be strongly emphasized and that is you know if there is a flaw in the transhumanist vision, it's really a naivety about what technology actually can do for us. You know, and as human beings, we have an, an uneasy relationship with technology. From the very beginning of our species, we have been creatures that have used science to understand the world and then have developed technology from the understanding that we've developed about the world. 
So we are a technological species, and we depend on technology. It's part of what has allowed us to be the dominant species in the world. In fact, I would say it's a reflection of the fact that human beings uniquely bear God's image. But as you're pointing out, technology, for example, frees us from, from manual labor, but at the same time, we become enslaved to that technology. You know, imagine if there was an electromagnetic pulse that went through our atmosphere and disabled the electrical grid or knocked out key satellites, because we depend so much on the internet and internet technology and cell phone technology, we would become crippled. We would become handicapped in a dramatic way because we are enslaved to these technological advances that on one hand improve our lives, but on the other hand, again, make us enslaved. And then you also point out, you know, rightly so that, there's always these unintended consequences with technology. Yeah, technology solves a problem in one place, but it creates new problems. And what do we do? We develop technology to solve those problems, which in turn creates new problems. And so these unintended consequences, the fact that, again, technology never quite delivers, to me is a really important point of caution to the transhumanist vision because as the technology becomes more powerful, the unintended consequences and the incipient problems that go with it become that much more uh, concerning, that much more damaging. And so, you know, this is, the, to me, the inherent flaw in the transhumanist vision. Yes, you know, and one of the trends that I'm seeing is that the machines are becoming more human and the humans are becoming more like the machine. Yeah, I mean, that that's right, because as we look at advances in artificial intelligence, for example, you know, you can develop these very sophisticated computer programs that make machines seem increasingly human-like in terms of their behavior, in terms of their responses, including emotional responses. And so it's going to be very easy in the future to attribute to those machines, again, human qualities to the point where we might even contemplate granting them, quote-unquote, human rights. And then on the other hand, you know, one of the most exciting technologies associated with transhumanism is the idea of computer brain interface technology, where through these interfaces, patients can learn to control machines with their thoughts. And this is going to be uh, very important for people that suffer brain injuries and stroke that are locked in, that can't communicate. They can learn to communicate through computer software that they can control and manipulate with their thoughts. People that are amputees can control robotic limbs, again, with their thoughts. Or people that are paraplegic or quadriplegic can control exoskeletons, for example, with their thoughts as well. And so this is really exciting stuff, to be certain. But on the other hand, you begin to create human entities that become utterly dependent upon machines in order to, to live their lives. And so in, in one sense, you could argue that this could potentially dehumanize people that become kind of melded with machines. But then on the other hand, for people that are suffering from these injuries and these diseases, this also could be a technology that allows them to, in a sense, recapture some of their humanity that's lost as a consequence of, of suffering from the disease. So again, it's a, it's a very complex you know, ethical environment that we find ourselves in, there's not a black or white response. We just simply can't, I think, condemn the technology because 
we would lose out on the enormous good, but we also just simply can't let the technology run amok without any kind of thought given to what is the best way to deploy the technology. Yes. Now, Fuzz, what kind of recent advances have been made in transhumanism? Well, you know, we talked a little bit about the, the computer brain interface technology. And, for example, one of the things that's really interesting, but again, alarming with computer brain interface technology is when you think about coupling the capacity to control computer software to, you know, to a, a person's thoughts, and with, with the, the Internet, access to the Internet, it's now possible for people to exert influence in remote locations around the world. So, for example, again, with a, a computer brain interface and access to the Internet, it's possible for a test subject in one part of the world to control a robotic arm in another part of the world. And, in fact, there have been studies done with, with lab rats, with animals in the lab, where you can have two rats, with each with computer brain interfaces that are tethered together through Bluetooth technology, where you train one rat to activate a lever to get a reward, and the other rat is untrained. And you put those two rats in side-by-side cages where the rat that is untrained has access to the lever arm, the rat that, isn't, that is trained doesn't have access, and through, the, through thoughts alone, the rat that is, that is trained can actually control or help the untrained rat know what to do uh, to, to access the lever arm with its thoughts alone. Or there's an, another classic study done where you had two human test subjects in different parts of the world both playing a video game where one test subject through the computer brain interface in his thoughts alone was essentially controlling actions for a joystick and then the other test subject again in a remote location would actually activate the joystick based on the thoughts of one of the test subjects and so when you start seeing these kind of advances it's it's really provocative because again it's saying that human beings can can carry out activities uh, in a non-localized manner and for transhumanists, they see this as a stepping stone uh, to creating things like the brain net, where we would be interfaced to one another through these computer brain interfaces in, in something like the Internet, where we could communicate our thoughts, again, to one another and exchange experiences and information with one another, again, through our, our thoughts alone in remote parts of the world. And so people you know, that hope for something like the singularity, where we we're going to upload our our minds into a machine framework, see these kind of advances as actually inspiring, again, the transhumanist agenda and the transhumanist vision. It seems like the two pillars of the transhumanism is artificial intelligence and genetic engineering. And so here, you're talking about advances in artificial intelligence, and it looks like it's creating or could create this one world mind kind of thing where we're all connected and we're like ants in an anthill or bees in a beehive kind of thing. Yeah, that's right. In fact, you know, this is something that uh, Michu Kaku, the famous uh, physicist, has advocated is this idea of the brain net. Or we now see Elon Musk forming a company called Neuralink, where part of the objective of that company is to develop these kinds of, of technologies. And again, for people that, that hold to a transhumanist 
perspective, this really is a very exciting advance that, that seems to lend credibility to, to their agenda. Yes, and then also the other pillar, you know, artificial intelligence, the other pillar seems to be, from what I get from your book, genetic engineering. We've made some tremendous strides in genetic engineering. Tell us about some of those advances. Well, and again, just like computer brain interface technology, these advances, again, are complicated in the sense of the ethical implications of these technologies. So many people suffer from genetic disorders. In fact, there are probably somewhere between five to 10,000 genetic disorders that involve a mutation in a single gene in our genetic makeup. And it's diseases like cystic fibrosis, as an example, a large number of blood disorders, uh, and the list goes on and on. And the thought is that with gene editing capabilities, with the CRISPR gene editing technology, that we could actually go in with high-precision gene editing and correct the defects in these faulty genes or replace those defective genes with healthy versions of the genes, and in doing so, treat patients with Again, diseases like, like, let's use cystic fibrosis as an example, where this is a disease that involves a a single mutation to a gene that is it codes for a, a protein called a chloride transporter, and that defective gene leads to the, the cystic fibrosis symptoms and disease. Well, could you target the gene editing package to the lung cells, correcting damage to just a handful of those cells even, and and that would actually mitigate the symptoms. And so this is the idea behind gene editing. Now, of course, you could also do gene editing on human embryos as well. And once you open up that can of worms, the prospects be, are, are such that you could actually then do gene editing on embryos, not to correct genetic disorders, but to actually augment human beings genetically to increase their strength, their psychological well-being, their their intellectual capability. And the thing that's really frightening to me about CRISPR gene editing is it, it is such a powerful technique that is very easy to use and, and is incredibly inexpensive. In fact, you can go on to Amazon.com and for under $200, order a CRISPR gene editing kit that you can have delivered wow. to your house the next day if you get Amazon Prime. And, and actually do gene editing experiments on your kitchen counter. These are, you know, fairly rudimentary experiments, but the point is is that the technology is that inexpensive and easy to use that it has given rise to something called a DIY biology movement, a do-it-yourself biology movement. And the person who is spearheading this is a biochemist by the name of Josiah Zayner, who argues that these advances in technology shouldn't be in the hands of the academic elites, but everybody should have access to these technologies. And, and at a Foresight conference, he actually staged a publicity stunt where he injected himself with a, a CRISPR gene editing package that was designed to disable a gene that codes for a protein called myostatin. A team of Chinese researchers showed a few years ago that if you inject that gene editing kit into the embryos of, of dogs, that you produce dogs that are grotesque in terms of their musculature. They have this overdeveloped set of muscles uh, because this, uh, this gene regulates or controls muscle growth and development. And so when that muscle growth and development is uncontrolled, the muscles just simply develop, you know, again, to such an extent that the dogs become almost like these super dogs. And again, this sounds almost 
science fiction-like, but it's a reality. And so you could easily see somebody setting up a facility in some region of the world where they offer gene editing therapy to parents that want to produce designer babies or to adults that just want to augment their genome. And given how easy it is to use and how inexpensive it is, you could easily see some kind of genetic tourism industry emerging where the, the technology is really in the hands of people that are going to use it the way that they want, want to use it, in a sense, in fulfillment of the transhumanist vision. Yes, you know, that, that part sounds a little scary. I mean, it's great that we can use genetic engineering to cure disease, you know, in people and in embryos that are developing, but we could use that technology to create the, quote, next Captain America, you know, a whole race of Captain Americas. And as you said, not altering their genetics and chemistry may have, you may create some kind of Superman, but may have some other side effects that uh, we may not be aware of. Yeah, that's exactly right. And this is the concern is that if, if, you know, if this technology isn't very carefully studied, then it could be horrifically misused and misapplied or applied with unintended consequences that could actually be absolutely horrific. And so to me, my concern about the technology being used in fulfillment of the transhumanist vision isn't when the technology is in the hands of, quote unquote, the academic elites, because they understand the potential use and misuse of the technology and are taking very real steps to self-regulate how the technology is used in terms of experimental development and, and as it's matriculating into a clinical setting. But to me, the concern would be people that go rogue and that want to see the technology used in fulfillment of, of transhumanism. And there's really very little that I can envision to stop people from doing that, at least in the, in the short term. But it's this idea of a biology DIY movement, again, is really designed, I think, to change the attitude of the American public or the, really the people around the world in terms of, again, how the technology should be used in fulfillment of the transhumanist vision. Yes, because those of us who are Christians believe that we are created in the image of God. But many in the transhumanist movement will take a naturalist worldview and really don't see a difference between humanity and the machines. And simply, this is just the next step of evolution of the human being. Yeah, that's right. You know, and I mean, many people that are transhumanists really are holding to an atheistic or a materialistic worldview. And as, as part of that, they just see human beings as the, the product of evolution and that we're inherently flawed because of the evolutionary process that produced us. And so we have an, an obligation to go in, according to transhumanists, and, and take control of our evolution and shape it in a way that improves upon you know, quote unquote, the human condition. But for people that are, an a that are atheists, that are materialists, it really is a very bleak worldview where there's no ultimate meaning or purpose to human existence. There is no real hope. The best that is going to happen to us is utter annihilation. We're just going to disappear into oblivion when our lives come to an end, and eventually our species will disappear as well. And so for people that hold to this atheistic view that is very depressing, that is nihilistic in nature, transhumanism offers them some form of hope, some possibility for destiny, for, for purpose, uh, a, a way to 
not only ensure you know their ongoing existence as individuals but the ongoing existence of of the human species and so they see transhumanism as really an imperative but it it is becoming essentially the eschatology if you will of atheists of materialists where Darwin's theory of evolution replaces the Genesis, you know, creation accounts, and we see transhumanism in effect replacing the book of Revelation, where it now is becoming kind of the eschatology of a materialistic worldview. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold a conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 4830586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online on the homepage. You'll also find we have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air, or online, as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. 